You're listening to Rock's Heart Radio. In today's episode, where Santa Moran highlights Heart Month with Aaron Mikos, Sharon Hayes, and Miriam McLaughlin. It's Roxana Moran from Rock's Heart Radio. And boy, am I excited in this month of February where our focus is heart disease. It's Heart Month, but heart disease in women. And I have three of the world's experts here with me as my guests. I'm just so, so honored to have with me my guests today. It's going to be a fantastic podcast and a great coverage of so many great topics. My first guest is Dr. Sharon Hayes, who is professor of medicine, consultant in the Division of Preventive Cardiology, Department of Cardiovascular Medicine at the Mayo Clinic. She is uh, somebody I've looked up to all of my, all of my, throughout my career She is a founder of the Women's Heart Clinic at the Mayo Clinic, and I would say probably emulated what everyone else is doing now in terms of heart centers for women, heart and vascular centers for women. And and, uh, not only has she done so much work on specific areas, but the fact that she thought about we needed to have a, a specialized center for women. I'm just so proud to have her, her work in SCAD and really thinking about disparities of women and minorities in clinical trials and important medical conditions are very well quoted uh, across the across the board. And she's on a scientific or advisory boards of, of uh, several, most importantly, uh, Women's Heart, which is a, the largest coalition of women with heart disease, not-for-profit organization that she is uh, uh, on the board uh, of. Welcome, Sharon. It's nice to have you, Dr. Hayes, but I'm going to call everybody by their first name. Welcome to the program. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. My next guest is Erin Mikos. Erin Mikos is an incredible clinician, researcher a tremend- with a tremendous vision. She's an associate professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins Medical School She's director of women's cardiovascular health there at, the, at, at Johns Hopkins. But beyond that, she has done so much work on uh, prevention, heart disease in women, vitamin D, cardiovascular health, you name it, especially on hypertension and, and lipid lowering uh, uh, agents and so much work. Uh, and I've been so lucky to be in her presence, especially in the last couple of years, we've gotten to know each other. Erin, it's wonderful. Dr. Mikos, it's wonderful to have you on the program. Welcome to the program. Yes, thank you so much for having me on the program. Thank you. And um, at last by not, but not least, one of my colleagues, dear friends, uh, we were fellows together, we trained together, we know each other for over 30 years. It's crazy. Dr. Marianne McLaughlin, who's associate professor in the Department of Medicine, Cardiology. She's the medical director of the cardiac health program here at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai where she's been a a tremendous clinician, researcher, and recipient of several awards from the NIH, CDC, and ARC, as well as the American Heart Association, ACC, and the New York Academy of Medicine. It's tremendous to have you on, on, on this conversation where we'll be focusing on heart disease in women. Welcome to the program, Marianne. Thank you so much, Roxanne. It's it's such a pleasure to work with you again. And I am just so impressed with your Lancet Commission. It should be the Bible of women in heart disease. I mean, this is just such such a great accomplishment. And you're starting the Comprehensive Health Center for Women here, which is just, um, you're the one who can do it. 
definitely. Well, well, thanks for saying that. And let's start with that because we've got the founder of one of the first heart clinics for women, Sharon Hayes. She started this at the Mayo Clinic. Um, maybe you don't want to tell us how long ago, but maybe we should because, because it's really important. Your vision, you're a visionary. I mean, you thought about this way back when, when no one was thinking about this. Tell us about how that came about. Well, we officially opened November 1998, so that definitely dates me, obviously. But um, I think it came from a variety of things um, that came together. Obviously, remember, this is before Heart Truth. This is before Go Red by years. But what I um, the, the situation is I would be sitting with my women patients compared to my men patients and recognizing one that the drugs or the tests or whatever were not quite um working or they came out differently and also then when i would sit down for the same condition the evidence for which i had to talk to men about versus women was just more right because they had been included and so this was sort of that early time if you think about the national environment environment was yeah we have some real gaps in fact the largest federally funded um a research study that really informed us was mr fit right that was the acronym and it had seventy thousand men and so i had a very supportive chair at that time who actually thought it fit very well into the the um the vision of the division and so i i think the one thing that i know that some others around that time they had to sort of justify why and I had to be financially viable and everything. And I had to have a business plan and I had to have a reason to be. And I had to make it clear that I was going to contribute to the health of the patients and the health of the practice, but I did not have to fight tooth and nail. And so we had a group of individuals who, so it's a bit serendipity, but we had a group of individuals who said, like, if we come together with our common interests, maybe we will be able to contribute to the science or at least help us and our other colleagues at Mayo. I mean, that's kind of how we were thinking about it. Practice better medicine for women at risk for and with heart disease and with symptoms. Remember also that this was when we were still recommending initiating estrogen in postmenopausal women to protect their hearts. So it's for, before Women's Heart Initiative had been uh, released. And I, there was some cynicism on the part of some of my colleagues. Oh, great. We have a place to send our patients, right? We, who To prescribe that estrogen. Now it's interesting because that actually came out before um, we launched, right before. And I had one colleague email me, oh, so you're not gonna do the clinic anymore. <laughs> Cause he really, I mean, that really was- That's how they thought about it. Right, it is that it was still bikini medicine and it was still hormones. And it was still a place where we can just park those patients we don't understand. And um, and there was some pushback as well, as you might imagine. Um, there were some of my colleagues who felt like, what do you mean? Are you implying I can't take care of women? That was not the implication, but I, I honestly thought we could raise the level of care. But there were a number of colleagues, including um, in, inside Mayo and outside, and some surgeons who was like, oh, that's Sharon's little pet project. Or little pink project and i think that I th one of the more gratifying things as you know the the time went on is some of those same people um were uh, recognizing oh my gosh there are sex differences and gender differences 
and asking me to collaborate um, a decade or so hence. It, it was not a quick start. It was very oh, much. It's, it's fascinating to think about this because I always imagine that if you get a lot of pushback for an idea, it must be a really great idea. <laughs> I really do. I always think about that because people don't like change. Now, Erin, you've had, you're the director of the Women's uh, mm -hmm. Art Center over at Hopkins. Did you have the same sort of a, a I, I know that that existed in some way, shape or form. You wanna tell us about how that came about and what you're doing there. And did you, did, can you imagine this pushback that yeah. you're Well, no, it's been wonderful. It was started a number of years ago by one of my colleagues, Dr. Pamela Oyoung. And then when she retired, I took it over and expanded it beyond just its one location to at multiple locations kind of around the hospital because there is a, a, a big need. Um, women patients, um, often seek this out. They often often prefer to see a, a woman cardiologist, but there's a lot of nuances, right? Women are not just smaller men. Um, there are differences in cardiovascular risk factors, even among traditional risk factors, things like diabetes and smoking confer greater relative risk in women than in men. But then there's unique um, risk factors that women experience throughout the lifespan that men do not, you know, related to, um, you know, menarche and polycystic ovary syndrome and pregnancy and adverse pregnancy outcomes and early menopause. And so it's so important to take a comprehensive reproductive history, because if you don't, um, you know, might, uh, people might miss these red flags of risk that put women patient into a higher risk category that might be captured by traditional risk factors. And then additionally, there are just unique um, uh, presentations of cardiovascular disease in women. So you know, we have, um, so firstly, we have our cardiobstetrics clinic where we have a lot of focus around cardiovascular disease and pregnancy and then managing long-term cardiovascular risk after an adverse pregnancy outcome. So patients post preeclampsia pre pregnancy get referred to our clinics. We have clinics focused on uh, microvascular angina, ischemia with non-obstructive coronary arteries, um, which is more common in women um, than in men, although men can get this too. And uh, it's really important that we give these patients a diagnosis. A lot of times they've been dismissed and told that their chest pain, uh, the ischemic pain is not cardiac because they didn't have obstructive disease and that their stress tests were false positives. And we did this uh, false service uh, without giving them a diagnosis because we can you know, improve outcomes and improve symptoms. And so doing specialized testing, looking at coronary functional testing and estimating coronary flow reserve to, to make the diagnosis of ANOCA. And then, of course, we have a SCAD clinic. So Dr. Dr. Hayes is the expert here, but uh, SCAD is 90% female patients. And uh, we work closely with vascular medicine as well to do the screening for FMD um, head to toe because there's so much overlap between our SCAD and FMD patients. Um, so there's really um, a lot of unique um, things that we do. We collaborate with GYN. We have a menopause clinic. So there's still considerations around hormone therapy. Many women still um, have very symptomatic vasomotor symptoms, and there still can be a role for hormone therapy for managing these um, vasomotor symptoms. And so they need a cardiovascular risk assessment around this time to determine sort of safety of hormone therapy. And so we have direct referrals from our GYN for our menopause clinic. Um, so it's wonderful collaborations between GYN and OB and primary care 
and uh, the it's a growing even growing need and, and demand. So I oh, Sharon, you see what you started? Bigger. You see what you started, Sharon? Yeah. Everybody is talking to each other and coming under the same umbrella. It's amazing. It yeah, has to I, it has to light you up. It does. It, it really does. And I and I think that um, that the more we see the more we can customize care. You know, we're all talking about individualized medicine. And I think a lot of our, my colleagues and others say, oh, that's all about genomics, right? But the primary differentiation is sex. I guess you can call that genomics too, yeah. X and Y. But, but I think as we look at, so, so we also have a focus on cardiorheumatology now, because we know of the higher level of risk in people with autoimmune conditions. Uh, we see the men um, there uh, who have that as well, just like I see the men with SCAD because it's, it's a smaller number. But again, when you see this high risk group that her, their needs are not being met um, and and it gives us an opportunity. And I, I have really appreciated, um, I've been very gratified to see um, things like what Aaron is doing uh, and other clinics that are really expanding services and wrapping around all stages of life, because we, as Erin as said, women are different and have huge impacts at multiple things that do not apply to men. Menarche, childbirth, menses, menopause, all of those yeah. things that have not been taken into account. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's incredible. Now, Marianne, I know that you've been doing this also, and uh, for all of these years, for the last 30 years, um, really in practice, you're, you've been working uh, around the clock on this. And when you're listening to this, I think she and I have had some discussion. And she, just before uh, we started this podcast, she was telling uh, me, what do, what do you think about uh, educating um, other subspecialties and bringing them into like what you were just saying, Sharon? Marianne, you want to you want to talk a little bit about that in terms of where you think we're missing out, perhaps, and how we have to make this more comprehensive because it's just not about cardioobstetrics or Anoka Manoka, but there's a lot other things, right? That's that's there, Marianne. Right. Well, thank you. It's again, it's a pleasure to be here, and it's interesting to hear um, the take of all of these experts and the fact that Sharon, you're involved with a rheumatology clinic, and we haven't done that yet. But I agree about looking at the different ages and the risk factors, and even teaching our fellows. Um, I've been working with an investigator here, Casey Crump, who's involved with the um, National Sweden um, database, and just published in JAMA. Um, not. Um, our group, but another group was was there to show that um, all the risk factors that we see the um, in pregnancy um, correlates with uh, abnormal CT angiography later in these women's lives. So having gestational diabetes, gestational hypertension, premature delivery, um, low birth weight children, all those those women were followed and then saw that they did have actual evidence of of increased coronary risk. So that's one thing from the GYN perspective, and we're working with um, the OB group here. Um, one of our colleagues has a very 
a very good connection with the cancer group. I'm actually also just started working with um, a colleague looking at the mammography, the breast arterial calcification issue that, you know, came to light just several years ago, whether um, we can use that as a risk factor. And what we're doing, working with a psychiatrist here to reach out to the patients who have evidence of their breast arterial calcification and see whether that changes their health behaviors, right? If we can can notify them about this effect and educate them, maybe we will then be able to see an effect on their overall cardiovascular risk. Um, so those are a couple of the collaborations that I think what Roxana will bring to the room is to have all of these people in the same room talking about cardiovascular risk. You know, I often think that a lot of this work is actually being done, but have it be in one center under a really organized way to not only just think about the delivery of care, but also an ability to be able to collect some data and think about how we could all collaborate with one another. And I don't know the the comprehensive center we're setting up at Mount Sinai, and as you know, I'm always about data collection. I set it up so in in Epic, we, we have a smart set and every patient gets into the using the smart set, which then downloads into a relational database immediately um, so that we have their encounter, you know, solidified, copied and brought into the, and they of course have to sign a, a waiver uh, for anonymized data for us to be able to at the very least immediately think about dissemination of data if, if there is such a thing and how we could bring all of these centers together to collect the same information, talk the same language. Now, Erin and, and Sharon, you guys were talking about, I believe we are just like heart failure, just like angioplasty, interventional cardiology. I don't mean to say that we should be training more people, but I almost believe there's enough here for a one-year fellowship for women or men, and it doesn't necessarily have to be women to care for women with heart disease. We need more men to care about heart disease in women. For some reason, it's been sort of pushed to the women because we feel like, oh, we, you know, that sex concordance situation. But I believe a fellowship um, in that could be, is, is really in order. And, and I've already written a curriculum. I'll be reaching out to you guys because if you think this is a, has some meat in it, which I think it does, and uh, we, could, we could go for an, um, to start a fellowship together across the centers, and then imagine that my fellow could then go and work at the Mayo Clinic or come to Hopkins uh, for a couple of months and vice versa, where we could really see what's going on in different different places and, and see different kinds of patients, et cetera. It would be fascinating. I don't know what you all think about that. Uh, I, I'll just speak to the, the same gender, um, same sex provider. Um, a lot of patients want that. Um, but I will tell them that's not what you really want when they, uh, you know, I want a, a, a female provider. I said, no, you want somebody who listens to you and who knows what they're doing. And there has not been one shred of evidence that says that care by women on average is better for women than care, except in some administrative databases. There's some evidence that I would hope that I yeah. and those of us on this call are better than the average male cardiologist because I specialize in this, but that's because I have received training. When we first started our Women's Heart Clinic, we specifically said this is not going to be limited to women cardiologists and providers. 
but that's all who asked to do it. I put out a call to the whole division. I said, we're going to work together. And um, I had one man who said he, he, he would be glad to do it. Um, and, but he assumed no woman would want to see him. Right. I mean, that, so there is this attitudinal thing. I have been quite heartened though, when we've had internal medicine residents and now cardi cardiology fellows who are doing elective rotations in the women's heart clinic. I ask every man why, I, because the women, I kind of, I should ask them, I suppose, but I ask every man and the one, the, 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 the answers I love the best are, they're going to be half my patients. I want more expertise Good. in this. Well, isn't that great? That's how mm -hmm. it right? should be. Right. And, and so oh. we need to imbue them and we need to help our patients and not promulgate the fact that yes, maybe you need to be at a women's heart center, but that does not mean that every woman that you see is going to be an expert in that. Cause that's, it, right. that's right. like an, that's like a bias in and of itself. Yeah, no, it's great. It's a great point. So, you know, that in, in the podcast, I put you guys on, on uh, a little bit, I corner you a little bit. So I want to know from each of you, we'll start with you, Erin, and then Marianne, and then back to Sharon. What have you been most impressed by in our progress towards uh, achieving our goals for heart disease in women? And what are you most disappointed by? Yeah, I mean, I do think that we've increased in awareness a lot about, especially uh, uh, the knowledge around the risk related to pregnancy. There's been a lot of uh, more increased attention about the risk of preeclampsia and gestational diabetes and, and long-term risk. And one of the things I was proud of is we did start, a, um, um, it was driven by one of our fellows who wanted training in this, uh, created a cardiobstetrics fellowship. Um, um, which uh, our, was a fellow's idea. We developed this curriculum and we published on how to do this blueprint. And now she's gone on to be faculty and uh, we're training other generations of people, um, of fellows to learn how to uh, manage this. Um, so I am pleased that we're making progress in the training, but I'm disheartened when I look at things like maternal mortality, uh, which is you know continuing to rise in the United States and disproportionately um, affects uh, women of color. And we know that cardiovascular disease is one of the leading contributors to maternal mortality. And the fact that we have not yet moved uh, the needle in this, despite all the information that has come out in the last few years, has is, is been disheartening. Yeah, it's pretty daunting, isn't it? Marianne, what are you excited and disappointed by over the last decade? Well, yes, I am excited that um, more internists and cardiologists are, as um, Sharon just said, uh, Aaron just said, so, sorry, are um, really looking at all the stages of life and the cardiovascular risk. Um, I am disappointed in the disparities. We have programs here at Mount Sinai reaching out to our um, disadvantaged communities in Harlem with lecture series every month, and those have, have really worked, but it's still a relatively small scale. I think that has to be um, really the education has to go on a more of a national level. Um, one thing when we talk about women's health, we've been talking mostly about coronary disease and coronary events, whether it's Minoka or not. But I think that AFib is one of my other interests. And I think uh, my work with the World Trade Center, you know, we had all these individuals, thousands upon thousands of individuals um, exposed to dust and inhaled particular matter. And we are looking at the relationship of PTSD. So there's the 25% of them have some residual PTSD and 
OSA, so obstructive sleep apnea, which is one of my other favorite you know, non-traditional risk factors for all of these things. Um, there's a very high rate among the World Trade Center survivors, so my interest is looking at the relationship of the OSA PTSD on AFib. And I think also in the, in the women coming into the menopause clinic having palpitations, how often are we missing AFib with some of their palpitations? I think the advent of all of the new monitoring, telemonitoring devices has really improved our ability to diagnose AFib in women, as we know that women have more stroke, higher stroke risk when they do have AFib compared to men, for whatever reason. So those are my, you know, thoughts about the other issues I'd like to keep investigating. Yeah, no question. Sharon? So I'm most heartened by conversations like this that include men and our colleagues who are taking leadership roles in this space and that the investments in research, although it's not enough for us to catch up and have the knowledge. Um, what gives me, uh, with Marianne talking about PTSD, what has given me PTSD um, is the continued lack of believing women. And I'm not talking about we women cardiologists, that's a whole nother issue, as you know, but um, particularly we were making a lot of progress. You know, back in the 90s and early 2000s, lots of women would go to the ED and they would say, I have an elephant on my chest and I am sweating and some and they and she wouldn't even get a CK or a troponin at that time or an ECG be shunted into a different triage. Um, and that changed, right? And then I had the recurrence of my PTSD with SCAD patients. So now you have 30, 40 year old healthy looking women and they are still going to the ED and they are talking about classic. We're not talking about atypical symptoms. They're talking about what all of us would say were, uh, were heart attack symptoms, but they do not look like heart attack patients. And in fact, some of them are being sent out of the ED with positive troponins. We would mm. never send a man out of the ED. So I think those unconscious biases, because I do not think any emergency department, um, emergency medicine physician or cardiologist means to do that, but that's where we need to work on ourselves collectively um, so that we listen and believe women and do not immediately attribute um, uh, their symptoms to anxiety or something else. And that goes for AFib too. I mean, we know this data that women are, are require many more visits before their SVT or AFib is, um, is diagnosed properly. Oh, amazing. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, myself, I'm excited about and, and really um, have a lot of hope for the future uh, based on all of the foundational work that you women have done here in terms of caring for women with heart disease. And thank you all for, for being here, but I remain um, cautiously optimistic because I believe that we still have all of the biases, even amongst some of the women who are caring for these patients um, and men, and that we continue to under underperform in terms of um, understanding sex-based outcomes uh, in every, possible avenue that you look at in with cardiovascular disease. And we absolutely have to get our arms around that. But what a fantastic opportunity to be with the three of you. I'm so honored. Thank you so much for this conversation. I know that uh, our listeners will enjoy this. And based on the likes and the number of, um, uh, you know, listeners we will have, which we have a plen plenty of, and I'm sure this will be a 
very popular podcast. I'll be back to you for part two because I think we have so much to say in this topic. And I really want to thank you for your time. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you, Erin. Thank you, Marianne. Doctors Hayes, Mikos, and McLaughlin. How lucky are we at Rocks Heart Radio? So thank you so much.